Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. If you are a regular listener to this show, and even if you are not, you might immediately recognize the voice of today's guest. She's the announcer and spokesperson you heard at the beginning of this show. A sought-after speaker and leader, she is also a renowned marketing and communication specialist in the financial services industry. She co-led the creation of Her Wealth, a women's financial initiative, and she has collaborated extensively with many allies in her quest to develop new programs designed to empower women with financial knowledge and confidence. She attended Penn State and Cal State Universities, majoring in political science and journalism, and she's attained the Chartered Mutual Fund Counselor and Chartered Retirement Plan Specialist designations. She also attended culinary school and cooked in professional kitchens in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., authoring a cookbook of her most successful recipes. Now, our guest also happens to be the chief marketing officer of the Colony Group, which not only is our sponsor but also the company for which I work. She's my business partner and personal friend too. And I do want to own this important connection up front. It may help to offer context for some of the emotion we are going to experience together during the show. You see, about a year ago, our guest was diagnosed with what some might call the grand emperor of all maladies, pancreatic cancer. She's here today to tell her story, one of heartbreak and fear on the one hand, but one of hope, courage, faith, and an indomitable spirit on the other. Please welcome the extraordinary Lisa Poff. Welcome, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Those are very sweet, very kind words. (laughs) A lovely introduction. It's lovely to be here with you today. Yeah, it is, although the circumstances are certainly difficult. And boy, who would have thought that you and I would be having this conversation over a podcast? You were one of the co-creators of this podcast. I was going to say, it's it's very uh, strange sort of being on this uh, side of the microphone. I'm usually in the background uh, pulling all the levers, arranging the gas, things like that. So 
yes, this is not uh, the most natural place for me to be. <laughs> no. And I know we could have a conversation about, about marketing and journalism and public relations and uh, women and wealth and all of these great areas of expertise. But we're obviously together today to talk primarily about your life since your cancer diagnosis. However, I don't really think we can do so without our audience first understanding you as a whole person who has lived on this planet for many years, long before your diagnosis. So, Lisa, I would ask that you take a few minutes to describe Lisa Poff pre-cancer diagnosis. Is that, is that hard for you to do? Well, well, when you say many years, Michael, <laughs> not that many. Um, I have lived on this planet for many years, I guess. Um, but no, I, I, no, absolutely. You don't lose your identity because you have cancer. And um, you, you have to fight really hard to continue to keep your identity um, once you have a cancer diagnosis or any kind of a health diagnosis that's um, that, that, that's pretty devastating. Um, so, so, so pre-cancer, um, I'm a mother of, of an extraordinary 30 year old, uh, daughter. Um, and she has always been the light of my life and, um, I'm just incredibly proud of her and, and of her passion and, and how she's pursuing her life. I'm a wife of Jim, my husband, for 33, going on 34 years now. So we're blessed to have a wonderfully long, loving relationship. Um, and uh, we continue to grow in our love and, and quite honestly, our friendship. Um, he's been my rock through all of this. Um, I am the chief marketing officer at the Colony Group, which, as you know, is my my dream job just um it's it's just an incredible honor and privilege to be able to um serve in that capacity um although i've had to step away for a bit um because of my health um and i am a principal there it's one of my most proud i would say achievements um but i'm also someone who i i did attend culinary school i I cooked in a couple of kitchens. I actually had a catering company at one point. I love cooking. It's a passion of mine. Um, I'm happiest when I'm in the kitchen at the stove. Um, I was an avid runner and I had to like, give up running when I got ill, but I'm back to walking. So, um, so yeah, there's, I love, love reading. So there's just so many, many aspects of who I am that is apart and aside from, from having cancer. Thanks for that, Lisa. So when did you start to feel that something was going on that yeah. wasn't quite right inside your body? <clears throat> so I, I would say it was probably January, February of last year, so 2021. And um, I, um, because I'm a runner, um, I have a bit of back pain and I know I have some arthritis in my back and uh, I just was getting this incredible back pain and I, I was more than anything I've ever experienced before. And, um, I felt at the time it was sort of radiating around to the front. So I just told my family doctor, and this is pre, this is right when the, the COVID vaccine was coming out. So we were still doing televisits with our doctors, things like that. And, and she suggested that I, I go get a back x-ray and then I go and see a gastroenterologist. Um, 
And so again, I, I pursued both paths. I was really thinking it was back issues. Um, and so I went and I had an x-ray and I started physical therapy, but things were not getting better. They were getting worse. And in the meantime, I was trying to get an appointment with gastroenterologists. And, and during this time, I've heard this from other people. It's really hard to get an appointment with, with doctors. Um, very, very tough. So um, it took me, I want to say four weeks, three or four weeks before I could be seen by my gastroenterologist. And that was just to set up um, the, the, the next sort of um, tests and things that they would want to do. Um, and it was short, it was maybe a couple of weeks after that that I had an ultrasound. And um, I remember being in the, the, the office, the radiologist's office, and they were doing this ultrasound and the technician left the room to make sure that the radiologist um, didn't need anything additional. And I turned around and I, I looked at the screen because I was not facing the screen. And so I looked at the screen and it was nothing but images of the pancreas. And I just had a horrible feeling right then and there. I just sort of putting all of the symptoms together. I thought, oh my goodness gracious, this isn't going to be good. Um, Did you have uh, any suspicion going into that, that it could be? You know, the, the, the pain in my, I would say my abdomen was increasing and then the pancreas um, controls, it has two functions. It's a gland, it sits behind the stomach, it's between the stomach and the spine, so it's sort of deep in the abdominal cavity. It's hard to get to, it's hard to see. And it controls the, um, it produces enzymes that help in digestion, and it also produces um, insulin. And I just knew there was something going on with my digestion. It wasn't, things just, it just wasn't feeling the same. And the word I'd use is it just felt creepy. I just don't know another word to use. It just felt really creepy. So kind of when I saw that screen, that was on a Tuesday. And, um, but then I didn't hear anything from them. And I thought, well, surely if this is bad, I would hear right away because these screenings they were available immediately to the doctor and it wasn't until so I had really talked to my, I, I went online first of all and I'm looking up all this stuff and getting terrified and then um finally when, and then I didn't hear from them so I just assumed by Friday oh it, it maybe it was nothing and then Friday afternoon I got a call and they said um we found mass on your pancreas and then they wanted to move up um, I was having um, an upper GI and a colonoscopy, and they moved that up to to Monday. And uh, I would say about the longest afternoon of my life was that Friday because my husband was um, at some work meetings, and um, and so I sat in my house. I didn't want to call him home from work, um, so I just sort of sat with this information on Friday afternoon. <laughs> And I waited for him to come home and to, to tell him, you know, this, this news was this really not good news. <laughs> but the news was that you had a mass. Were they telling you that it could be cancer at that time? They were. They were. I asked the question. And, and I have to say the gastroenterologist that I went to, because I don't really have any issues, you know, that I needed to have a regular gastroenterologist. The one I had 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 retired. This was someone else. I would have to say their office was almost dismissive about it. And even with the, when I went in on that Monday to get the um, upper GI, the colonoscopy, um, they confirmed it, but they sent me to Georgetown for a biopsy to confirm whether it was cancerous or not. 
and it was just almost dismissive um and which was stunning to me what does that mean dismissive like what does that look uh they actually the the gastroenterologist i mean i i point blank asked him i said so what did he confirm but i said so what does this mean i said do i what's the next step you know i was trying to get information and he he literally sort of rubbed me on my my forehead and said don't you worry you let me do the worrying very condescending very dismissive um and then the next day i went and i had blood work done and there's there are these blood panels or these blood tests that you can get done that sort of measure cancer activity in your body um and there's one test in particular it's called the ca-19 ca-19-9 um normal range is less than 40 units per milliliter and mine was over 5,000. so i freaked out (laughs) And it was another 10 days before I was able to get this, the biopsy. So things start, you, you, you start doing the research, you start understanding a little bit about that pancreatic cancer, you know, and, and, um, and all you want to do is just get to somebody who helped you get to treatment as fast as possible. So all of these things, these delays, they just felt like the tumor is going to be growing, the cancer is going to be spreading, everything's going to be um, just happening more quickly than I can get to somebody to help me start treatment. And that's, it's just a very terrifying place to be. Yeah. And so um, you, you felt ultimately there was, there was too much delay. I do. I do think there was too much delay. And do you think part of that was COVID related? Are you, are you? I do think that was COVID related. I also think it was just the, the gastroenterologist office that I went to because I kept asking them, well, who at Georgetown are you referring me to? And they, they said, well, they're going to give you a call. And it's like, well, who, who is the doctor? And so I finally got the doctor's name and it wasn't until I actually talked to a nurse there. I kept bugging them and I said, I, I need the telephone number because I need to make sure that I get this appointment scheduled. They said, oh, well, it could take up to two weeks. Like, I don't have two weeks. Yeah. You know? So you you have to start pushing and pushing sometimes um, in order to, to get people to move more quickly. Yeah. Did you have access to your your medical notes? And when I when I go to see a doctor, mm-hmm. I'm able to go on typically shortly after online in an app and see what the doctor wrote. Yes. Now, now I do. Um, but at the time, um, the gastroenterologist, I, so I did, I was able, so I signed up for everything. So I did lab war where they did the, the, um, ultrasound and the blood work. I mean, I, I have so many portals now it's crazy, but, um, some of them are integrated, some of them are not. Um, but at the time from, from a medical perspective, they they are, and, and Georgetown is, well, it's a phenomenal medical hospital and it's a teaching hospital it has an antiquated standalone system and um it, it they they are just not very good about uh providing information in a time at a timely basis so um i i heard back from a resident not from the actual physician that performed the biopsy to say yes it's been confirmed it's it's cancer so um so that was a telephone conversation it was a telephone conversation yes yeah and were you by yourself when you had that conversation i'm trying to recall i mean jim might have been home at the time i was prepared though i i was 
most of these tumors, when you start again doing the, the research, the research gets a little scary to do. Uh, it's not a, not, a, not a good thing to Google. I told my mom, when I finally told my mom about it, I just said, I just don't want you Googling it. Just, just don't. <laughs> because it's not, it's, not a, it's not good to, to sort of be, um, get into those details. And they're very scary. So I wanted her to just listen to me talk to me. I will tell you what you need to know about the disease and what's with my, and, and I've been very open from the very beginning as you, Michael, because I've given the company updates and I've talked very openly about where I am and what my treatment has been and the struggles. And, and, um, so I just think it's really important to, and what I've learned is that they, everybody's individual in this situation, in their situations, even though statistics are not great. Um, and then we can talk about the statistics. So it's about 62,000 people a year. 62,000 people in the U.S.? In the U.S., yes, are diagnosed with um, with pancreatic cancer. Um, 11% have a, um, a relative five-year survival rate. Um, so it's a very low percentage. So just about 50,000 people every year die. And they're almost equal men and women, maybe a little bit more men uh, get this than women, but they're, they're pretty equal. So it's, it's not, um, it, it's not a, a disease that you want to hear that you have. Um, but then again, um, and that's why acting very quickly is, is so, so important because of the, um, the statistics and the, and the actual you know, longevity of this disease. How did people react when you started to tell them the news? I like how did your mm-hmm. how did Jim act? How did how did your daughter act? How did yeah. your colleagues react? Yeah. Um, you know, it I think it's very shocking because I'm a very healthy person. I mean, Michael, you, you work with me and me. I'm extremely healthy. I run, I'm very health conscious, I eat a great diet. Yeah, yeah you eat well as well. Exactly. These things are not supposed to happen to people who are really, really healthy. Um and uh, I was so focused on keeping myself healthy and um, that I just assumed my mother is 90. I assumed, well, I'll just follow in her footsteps if I continue to, um, to, to ha- lead a healthy lifestyle. Did so, you tell me that you once even taught an aerobics class? I did. Oh, my gosh. Back in the 80s in L.A., I had the, the leg warmers and the whole thing. <laughs> The Jane Fonda, you revert to her heyday. But the point is, you've always lived a very healthy life. I know, I have. So people were stunned. I mean, people were just very shocked. And I think what helps other people was how I reacted to their reaction. So I wanted it to be, and, and I have, I don't want you to think that I, I haven't cried about this. I've cried about this. I assume you've cried about it. I have, but you know, when you're facing other people that you love, I I cannot break down. I mean, I want them to have be happy, hopeful. I want them to, um, I don't want them to have despair. I want them to, um, I don't want them to be afraid. I, I want them to know that it's, it's okay to have your feelings and feel your feelings, but we also have to just have a lot of hope. And that's the biggest thing that people can provide for me is to is to provide hope. And so after the initial shock and all of that, I think I've just had this outpouring of of love and um oh just prayers and it, 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 just people telling me how strong I am. And people people have told me that I that they thought I'm 
think I'm the strongest one of the strongest people they've ever known. And I don't actually view myself that way, but, um, but it's interesting uh, because I do feel like I have a strength, um, an inner strength. And so, um, so while their reactions can be um, kind of, like I said, they're shocked, it, it really comes back on me to just say, look, it's okay. We could talk about this. We can tell me how you're feeling. We can, I can walk you through this. I can let you know how I'm feeling. You don't have to be afraid. So, yeah. Um, I have to reveal to you, though, that I have fear. I, I, I can't say that I'm not fearful. I'm fearful of, of losing you. I'm imagining that others absolutely feel the same way, especially your family. Yeah. And, and it went there initially when you first, again, when you're diagnosed and you're looking at all the scary statistics and all of that. And you, you do, you think about, okay, well, am I going to live? A year? Am I going to live two years? Can I beat the odds and live five or at least five? And I just determined that I'm going to just keep living. <laughs> just, I just said, well, I'm just going to keep living. Love it's that. just something I'm going to just keep doing. And when, when I was diagnosed and, and I went through um, chemotherapy, um, I chemotherapy was really hard on me. So, um, what the viewers don't know is that I look pretty much like I did a year ago. Um, but I, when I was diagnosed and started chemo, um, I lost 25 pounds pretty quickly because I couldn't get the nausea under control. And, um, and during that time, when you're sick all the time, and we're talking, I was sick for a month and a half at least, um, and you're trying to, and you're supposed to, with the cycle of chemotherapy, you're, you have a week, they give you chemotherapy on, let's say, I'm on a Wednesday. And then you go home with your, you get two chemotherapy drugs and you're, and you're there about six, seven hours of getting the chemotherapy infusion. And they send you home with the third drug and it's on a pump and it's delivered over four to six hours. And then you have the, the week, the next week off because you're there, it's your kind of your recovery week. So that by the time you come back around, you've had a little bit of a break. And in the beginning, I just didn't have a break at all. I was literally going from treatment to treatment, just feeling very, very, very sick. And um, so, I, like I said, the last treatment, kind of lost all my muscle mass. I couldn't drive. I could barely walk. Um, it was, it was just really, really difficult. Um, during that, that initial stage. Um, so during that time, I think that was where it was my lowest in terms of just because I wasn't feeling well. And I said to my husband, well, but I don't have anything to look forward to. And that's really the hardest thing. So when they got the um, um, nausea under control, I could start to eat, I could start to drink, I was regaining my strength, I could do more, you start to have more hope at that point so what about surgery yeah so um my tumor is i i'm considered what's called locally advanced which in a staging standpoint is stage three it means that the tumor is um it's it's local so it hasn't spread i'm not stage four but it's not operable at this point um so I was told very early on, I, I had treatment at Johns Hopkins. That's where I initially had my, um, my treatment. I, I live right outside of Washington, D.C. in Virginia. 
And so I'm very lucky that there are a lot of medical, incredibly talented medical um, institutions and, and a lot of the pancreatic specialists are, are kind of in um, the Washington, Baltimore, New York, and, and the Northeast. Um, but I was told that, that I, that operation was not possible uh, because the tumor is encasing the mesenteric artery um, and it, it, it's a it's a, not a great surgery. It's a very difficult surgery under the best of circumstances um, because they remove part of your pancreas, your spleen. They have to reattach your stomach. They have to reattach your um, intestines. So it, it's a very wow. complex surgery, and it can be a life-altering surgery even for survival people who survive it. I mean, you just have to learn how to eat again. Um, but it is the only cure for the for the for this disease so for me because it includes it involves the vascular system at this point i am um i am not able to get an operation so that was i was told by that that by johns hopkins um and and others you i i happen to know because i talked to you about all of this that you are also uh, going through an experimental protocol so yeah. could you speak about that a bit yeah yeah and i this this gets back to um i think it's so important for anybody who has a medical issue whether it's a chronic medical condition or whether it's something that could be a life threatening medical condition that you have to be your own advocate so for me um it was, it was about, I think it was in August or early September, I had a scan um, and I was, um, I was being treated at Sibley Hospital, which is in DC. It's a Johns Hopkins um, affiliate. And I had a CT scan and my medical oncologist said to me, um, well, they think that they've had these, these nodules. Anyway, they're in my, they're in the abdomen. And they disappeared. And so this radiologist surmised that because they disappeared, it was because of the chemotherapy. So therefore the cancer is spread outside of the tumor. And so therefore they were restaging the stage four. And the following week, that was on a Friday, I got that. That name. must have been crushing. It was it was horrible because going from locally advanced to stage four, there are a lot of options for your treatment that get just literally taken off the table. They just, they're just, it becomes a very small toolbox at that point. But the following Tuesday, the tumor board met at, uh, in Baltimore. Their radiologist disagreed and put me back at, at, at locally advanced stage three. At that point, I got really angry. I just said, I'm this, I just felt like I got gone. Okay, now I'm, I'm stage four, but I'm back to stage three. So I, I decided I was going to go get second opinions at that point. And, and actually, it was something my medical oncologist had encouraged me to do. He encouraged me to see the team um, at Morose Low Kettering. Um, and so I did. I, I made an appointment um, and I was able to meet with um, Dr. Eileen O'Reilly at Monroe Credit. She's one of the top in the world in this in this area. And um, she concurred, actually, with all of the treatment I had received thus far. And this, the, the appointment with her was um, in September, I want to say. It was late September. And um, so, and she also agreed that my tumor was not operable. 
but she was running a clinical trial along with Dr. Christopher Crane, who's a radiation oncologist. Um, and I was eligible for the, the trial because they were looking for locally advanced non with tumors who that are non-resectable or inoperable. Um, and this was a protocol to test out a drug called Duralumab and Duralumab has been used successfully with lung uh, cancer tumors. Um, and what it does is it, it's, it breaks down sort of the cancer cells have this shield around them that makes them very sneaky. So the body doesn't understand it's a cancer cell. So the, um, drug breaks down this outer kind of protection so that the body can recognize that there's a foreign substance or there's this foreign object. And that's the, the idea behind immunotherapy versus chemotherapy. Um, but I was able to get with her and I had, I had two options. So once the, the chemotherapy was done, I had five months of chemotherapy or 12 rounds, which was about the maximum that they can give you for this because there are side effects to chemotherapy, some that can be um, last you a lifetime. And so they're very careful about how long you're on chemotherapy. Um, so after that, it was time for radiation and radiation for somebody who can't receive surgery. It's like your surgery, right? They're trying to kill the tumor. Their, their radiation is a kind of a locally based alternative to, to, um, or the, or sometimes it's used in conjunction with, um, surgery, but in my case, it was in Lua. And so I could have gone with Johns Hopkins and a protocol of five weeks of radiation every single day with a particular type of radiation. But when I talked to the radiation oncologist, he said, I just don't think I can get the radiation high, up, high enough for what's called ablative radiation. Ablative radiation actually has, it's been shown to be better at, at actually killing the tumor. But because the pancreas sits close to your stomach and your intestines and, and other sensitive organs, you sometimes you cannot get the radiation levels high enough in ablative radiation to, to be able to kill it. So there was course one, which was the five weeks, five days a week, along with a chemotherapy pill, or go to the clinical trial, which with Dr. Christopher Crane, he was going to do the ablative radiation, and then I would start immunotherapy for a year. And it was interesting because I had a conversation with him. Uh, we had a tele televisit, and I asked him. I said, "So I've been told that you know maybe I'm not a candidate for ablative radiation because of the of where the tumor is." And and he said the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. He goes, "I looked at your scan. I'd say you're easier than average." And so I think what's so important to understand is that. When you are going through something, you know, that it's a medical issue, there are skill levels of, of, of uh, doctors. There are skill levels of radiologists, and that's not to take anything away from the people at Johns Hopkins. And, and everybody is brilliant in this field. They're just brilliant. But there are people who are doing things that are a bit more cutting edge, that, are, that, that just are um, a little bit different than the normal protocols. And when I looked at both of those options and I knew how sick I had, although I had done very, very well on chemo, it had shrunk my tumor. It brought my cancer markers down to almost normal levels. So I had done extraordinarily well on it. Um, I made the decision. I just said, I, I think 
I want to try this team. I think that the ablative radiation is the better route for me to go. I want to try the immunotherapy. I can always go back to chemotherapy if I need to. And if it provides another tool for others who are facing this disease, other than chemotherapy, I, I'm all for it. Let, let's go for it. Let's try that. Lisa, are there things, I, I, when I talked to Adam Hayden, who is a survivor of glioblastoma, and I know that yeah. you know him and uh, you helped with that podcast, um, I, I, I was curious to know how, how he preferred people speak to him about his disease. Yeah. And I had the same curiosity with respect to you, because if anything, I want to know how, how best to talk to, to, you know, to, to someone who has pancreatic cancer, which is sure. wiped out as a very serious disease. Yeah. When people talk about the journey you're on, or people talk about the quote battle with cancer, or when people say things like, well, I know you're going to be okay. Are there, are there things that, that you hear that you don't want to hear, or do you, do you, um, do you not think about this kind of thing? It's interesting. Um, I think people's initial reaction when, when you say you have pancreatic cancer, you could just see it in their eyes. Some people have actually, I don't want to say gasped, gasped out loud, but you know, something like that where it, it really, really sort of knows the severity of this disease. And so, um, I would say with anybody who is battling cancer, regardless of the survival rate, I, I, I being, being shocked or, or, or I just don't think that's very helpful for, for the person on the receiving end of it. it okay. um, but as far as sort of battle, I think in the beginning, yes, I considered it a battle. I mean, like, you're like, oh my gosh, there's this thing inside me and I have to kill it. <laughs> let's just get in there and let's do whatever we need to do to kill this sucker. Right. And so, so yeah, I think there, there was that, that feeling initially, I think now, um, because I am going, you know, the, 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 the treatment is continual. I feel like it's more of a coexistence. So it's a part of me. It may always be a part of me. Um, things might change. I'm, there might be some other treatment that might come up that changes the situation where we can verify and confirm that, that the tumor is dead. There's no way to do that, by the way. Um, but you can have a scan, but they still see the mass. They can't tell if it's dead tissue or if it's live tumor. That's that's the other problem with this whole thing is that I actually had a surgeon that I spoke to, one of the very few that would potentially um, operate on on someone like me. Um, so I've, I've done a lot of research. I've talked to a lot of, of different surgeons. He's out of NYU. Uh, but he told me he's actually gone in and taken pancreatic tumors out of patients and um, they've taken them to pathology and the tumor is dead. So because they've had chemotherapy, they've had radiation, they've had other treatments. Um, and is this such a person cured? Is that, is it? Yeah. Is so, that so yes, you were cured. As long as the tumor has not, cells are not out in your body somewhere, you are, you are cured at that point. Um, by, but getting back to you know, your question, I, it, it's really more of a coexistence. And it's a, okay, so what can I do so that it stays where it's supposed to stay? If it's going to be with me, it, then it can just stay there, but it can't go anywhere else. So what do I do to keep it there and not anywhere else? And then I just move on with my day. You just have to kind of move on and, and 
and live your life. Lisa, you've said that there's a difference between good fortune and luck. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I really, I feel so strongly about. So luck to me is completely random, right? Um, you're lucky. Wait, my husband and I went to a party in Los Angeles when we lived there and we, our names were thrown in a raffle. We didn't even buy a raffle ticket, I don't think. Uh, I think it was just part of attending the party. And we won a trip to Puerto Vallarta. So that's luck to me. I think that good fortune is when you have opportunities, when you have things that are presented to you and you act on those opportunities. So sometimes you might feel like you're prepared for that opportunity. Other times you may feel that you're not. (laughs) But it's good fortune because um, you have this opportunity in front of you um, and 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 you you can act on it. So, for instance, I feel like we I've done a lot of research. I had the help of an outside um, pinnacle care, which is part of the curated by colony program, right? That we, that we have for our clients. I had the good fortune to be able to have access to that program. So, what do they and do? They helped me. They helped me access the healthcare system. Because when you're sick, when you're weak, when you, you just can't advocate for yourself, they were the ones that got me the, the initial appointment at Johns Hopkins. They were the ones that when I said, okay, I need second opinions, I need surgeons, I need to start really proactively working on my own, it, it, for my own benefit. They were the ones that, that had suggested Dr. O'Reilly, although my, my medical oncologist had also recommended her um, as someone, and and then they, there was another group as well, um, and so I I was able to meet with her. I fit the clinical trial, so I had the good fortune of being able to fit the clinical trial, and there was an opportunity for a different type of a of a treatment program, and so I feel it's a good fortune to have an opportunity to be able to take that um, to go in to go that route. Um, so while this is not a great disease to have, there are still there's still a lot of good fortune that comes um, that comes with it that you still have to seize on those opportunities. And it's not just medically related; it could be whatever comes up in your life. Um, I was getting back to my culinary days. I was sort of I taken a little hiatus with my daughter. I had. Uh, hiatus for work so that I could stay home and raise her. Um, and it was time to get back into work. And I happened to be at a soft opening of a restaurant right here in Virginia. I met the chef. I went in and I saw his kitchen and he said, if you ever want to come in and cook in my kitchen, just let me know. Mm-hmm. And so about a month later, I called him up and I said, if you were serious about that, I'm ready to do it. And so for six months, I cooked in this, it's an incredible kitchen too. It's one of the, the most wow. wonderful big kitchens. He didn't pay me, which was fine. I didn't want to get paid. Um, I just wanted the experience of working in a brigade. And I started picking like you do. You start at the lowest rung. You start picking um, herbs and you start salads, you start cold. They don't put you on the line. I did work the line though, eventually. Which was very cool, and I have a lot. I, and, and, and his name is Jonathan Crin. He was the chef that 
that did this and he's a very good friend of mine and I dedicated my cookbook you mentioned that I did write a cookbook um but I dedicated it to him and um I often have said to him were you crazy like the insurance and Cricky was like I can't even imagine from an insurance standpoint like I, that's all my brain went to but I thought I'm just gonna take advantage of that I'm gonna I'm gonna go in and like I said for six months I was I was just so happy to be in with these really skilled chefs putting out this these incredible this incredible um food every, every day so it was a lot of fun lisa I, I i talked to you earlier about hope and you said that you have uh much hope you do you 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 seem to demonstrate great strength and resilience. And I understand that this is just my perception, only how much of that actually exists inside of you. But you you really do exude strength and resilience. I guess my question is, where does it come from? Is it because you just don't have a choice? And and I ask you that question because I want to give you a chance also to speak about about your faith and and your spirituality. Um, I know you personally, you and I are friends, we work together and I've heard you speak about that. Is that a source of your strength and resilience? Absolutely. It is, it is absolutely a source of my strength and more so now I would say than, um, better than at other times. Um, so the answer initially to your question is, I think I'm just sort of built like this. I've always been an incredibly optimistic person. I'm the kind of a person who just knows that everything is going to work out. I, I just don't sweat a lot of the stuff. Um, I, I just don't. I just have always had that feeling. Things are going to work out. I just have that that perception and that feeling. But as far as faith, you know, your faith can can wax and wane, right? It, you can be maybe really involved in your faith, or I was earlier. And, and honestly, it, it, it sort of become checking the box kind of a thing for me um, in the mode before sort of the cancer hit. You get busy. There's lots of things that can get in the way of, of maybe having a deeper relationship with God, um, having a more intimate relationship with God besides the the prayers and then the wonder list of things that you'd like him to do for you. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but this taught me just something just so incredibly deeper than that. Um, and the kinds of things that will bring me to tears, and I've often said this, it brings me to my knees, is the immense hopes. I thought I was going to get through this okay. And now this is what makes me tear up, is the immenseness <laughs> of people, um, people I had never, ever met. So my sister teaches a Bible study. There are about 50 women um, that she teaches this Bible study for. I know a handful of them, but not well. I started getting cards um, and gifts, like on a regular basis for people I had never, ever met. Um, It just blew me away. With every card I would open, I would just start crying. I was like, oh, this is so... This idea of lifting up someone in prayer, remembering somebody to God, I think is so incredibly important. Um, it's just, it makes all the difference in the world. I call these people my prayer warriors. Even in, the, in our company, one of the things that, Michael, I so appreciate that you have done is I know through your son, um, who has had, he, he was 
had a marvelous, you had a marvelous interview with your son. So you. you know, that was probably very hard to do, but for those that haven't listened to that, that broadcast, they, they should. Um, and, but I know you're going through your son's open heart surgeries and all that you opened up about your own thoughts and prayers and feelings about that. You've written on LinkedIn, um, about that. And, and for me, that gave me the space to be able to bring that up even to our colleagues, because as I regularly or try to regularly do, um, videos and send them to the team just yeah. to let them know what I'm doing. And I, I, I thank them for their thoughts and prayers and the responses I've gotten back from people have been just amazing. Um, the number of people that pray for me on a regular basis, the number of people that think good thoughts for me on, on, on a regular basis. Um, it's, it's very humbling. It is incredibly humbling. And it has shown me the importance of this to have this, have, have time in your life for, for prayer, for reflection, for, um, to, to bring, to bring your, your problems to God. I mean, we, we go, we talk to our friends about things, right? And, and so I want to, and I've been trying to cultivate a relationship with God where I go to him with those problems first and, and I have left them, I left them at his feet. I basically said, you have this. I don't have this. This is not something I have any kind of control over, but you do. And I'm relying on you to be that strength and that, um, that, that constant um, support system for me. And, and, and he just does not fail. He does not fail. So. Well, I know you know that I continue to pray for you, and so do all of you. You use the word colleagues. We're much more than colleagues for you, Lisa. We love you. You guys are really <laughs> such great friends. Yes. It's really, it's, it's yes. very hard for me to have this conversation with you. So you recently wrote to me that I don't feel as though I am extraordinary. I don't feel I'm extraordinary, especially since listening to many of the interviews with your other guests. That said, my experience with pancreatic cancer has revealed the extraordinary in so many others. Yeah. Now, as I do not agree, I wouldn't have invited <laughs> you on this show if I didn't think you were extraordinary. To me and so many others, you, you are extraordinary. But I'd like to still give you an opportunity to make, to make whatever point there is in that statement. Yeah. Well, and, and, I, and I don't want, it's, it's not a false humility either. I, I. I feel that um, I feel that that some people have lived these these lives, these extraordinary lives, um, with these just amazing accomplishments, um, and so and that's not really how I, I view my life at all. Um, I <clears throat> so, but what it has shown me and it's given me such a great appreciation for are, like I said, the extraordinary people that are around me, the extraordinary acts of kindness that have, that have just come because this is, this is how people react and, and they want me to feel that I'm not alone, that they want me to know that they, that they love me. Um, from the, when you start, when you enter a, a medical, into the medical system at this, what I call this level, I mean, you need extraordinary doctors and nurses and 
these medical professionals that you're like, oh my goodness gracious, I, I do not know how you do this day in and day out. I mean, these are people who work, I think they work constantly. I just don't think they, I know that the medical oncologists that I am working with, they just, they work really, really hard for the benefit of their patients. They want to save lives. You think about the technology, like the, 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 the scans and the screening. And I was talking to this surgeon that, that I think it's a very long shot, but, you know, there's a special scanner that, that he would want me to get a scan by so that they, it can, so he could develop a 3D model of my pancreas and my tumor to determine whether or not the surgery could be potentially possible however dangerous it might be. But I just think about that and I think, oh my goodness gracious, this is, blows my mind. Like with the, um, the passion and the expertise and the love and the kindness of other people. And you, you, you feel that there's a weightiness that comes with that because they're like, wow, they're, this is all for the benefit of me and people like me. And, um, there's just a real, how do you ever say thank you? How do you ever, how do you ever come back and go, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for this. Or it's words just simply cannot begin to, um, to, to do the feelings that you have inside, the, 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 the gratitude that you have. The, um, it, there's just no words. There's just, it's very, very hard. You try, but thank you, or I appreciate that. <laughs> it just seems so, so completely inadequate. You also have a message regarding the importance of being your own advocate yeah. and going through an experience like cancer treatment. Yeah. What's, what's the message there? Well, as I mentioned before, when I, when I, I thought others had it, I thought that I was waiting for the chemotherapy therapy to be finished and then to start this other treatment. And I had a big wake-up call when I had that, you're stage four, you're not stage four. And I, through an organization called Pantheon, I had the opportunity to talk to um, a survivor. Um, and she did have surgery. She actually was the one that told me about Christopher Wolfgang, who does these more complicated surgeries. Um, and she was diagnosed at the age of... Um, 30, 34. So I think she's 40 now, very young. And that's, that's very unusual. Pancreatic cancer is typically for people who are over the age of 50, most definitely over the age of 60. That's when you start seeing it. But she said to me, you, you have to advocate for yourself. Lisa. You, you've got to get out there and do your own research. And, and, and Pancan really does help a lot with that as well, as well as pinnacle care. But it really wasn't until I said, okay, I have to do this. I'm not going to rely on my medical oncologist to do this for me. They're too busy. They, they just, there's no way that they could possibly do this for all their patients. They're going to have one sort of prescription that they're going to follow. And I needed to know all of the options because I'm in this to, to win. I'm in this to live. And um, so I, it was for me, it was like, I will not, I, I need to overturn every potential stone I have to look at every potential opportunity for um to for treatment um and if somebody tells me I can't have surgery I've got to understand what I actually did talk to two different surgeons who do work with a vascular system 
I got completely different reasons why <laughs> why why they wouldn't wouldn't operate. And one was because they've included portal vein. And um, he said, it's just, I need an, an end to connect to. And then again, this, I talked to Dr. Wolfgang, he's like, oh yeah, that's not a problem. We'll just graft around it. So again, you, you, you get these differing opinions, um, but that's okay. It gives you choice and, and you can sit down and you can look at what your choices are at the particular time, because there's, you can't possibly know everything. And and you have to make a good decision then based on your choice. But if you don't have any choice, and actually there was someone who I met who's, um, who lives not very far away from me. She's a little bit younger than me. We have almost the same identical tumor. And she chose to part path. But, you know, she said to me, because we share information, she said, Lisa, I just feel like I got started a little late in terms of looking at alternatives. And again, when you're dealing with pancreatic cancer, and you stop chemotherapy, you want to act immediately. And so her path is very different than mine, even though our tumors are very similar. Um, and it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It's just sometimes it comes down to choice and what the information is that you have at the time that you're trying to make decisions about your, your own life. You mentioned pinnacle care a, a few times, yeah. and, and then you mentioned PANCAN, which, yeah. which uh, stands for Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. So right. could you speak about PANCAN for a bit? Right. Well, you, again, you, you learn about these things when you, have, when, you, <laughs> when you get a disease. I never even knew this existed. So um, PANCAN was started in 1999 by Pam or Costa Marquette, um, and she, um, her mother was uh, diagnosed um, with pancreatic cancer, and she, um, so she started this organization at that time. It was a fundraiser, she did a charity dinner, this was in, out in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills and with some celebrities and things like that, and it was, and she started an organization to help coordinate information because it's very confusing and Michael I know you're a brain tumor survivor and you're very involved in the National Brain Tumor Society yes and um and when there's not an entity that you can go to you have your what do you do as a as a as a cancer patient or if you're a caregiver or a healthcare professional so it was started to be able to provide funding, first of all, for research. So they've raised $150 million so far for research for pancreatic cancer. And because there's, it seems like, well, it's only 62,000 people a year get diagnosed. Um, there, there wasn't any really any advocacy for funding for the National Cancer Institute um, to, for them to fund cancer research for pancreatic cancer because they just felt that the numbers were too low. Yeah, it's almost an orphan disease. Right, ex exactly. So they were able to get it on the, the maps. So there's a lot of advocacy they do in D.C. Um, to, to try to continue to increase funding for it. Um, they work with patients. They worked with like over, like I think it's 270,000 patients and caregivers, healthcare providers. It's been a great source of information for me um, because I didn't know where else to go. And, and again, you start doing things on the internet and you're not sure what you're reading. And, and I just wanted to have some, some good, solid information that I could have um, and to understand my tumor, my options. They're, they're the place to go to see where all the clinical trials are because, again, the medical oncologists can't keep track of them all. 
Um, so they're great um, a resource if you want to know what clinical trials they're actually putting together their own clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So and they're so right now there's an eleven percent survival rate, five relative survival rate. Their goal is to increase the survival rate to twenty percent by twenty thirty, mm-hmm. which is it's a phenomenal goal. And then and um, one of the things, one of the hardest things. When you go to the website or you're, you're looking at teams, because they also have a walk like many other charitable organizations to, to raise money. money. And um, one of the things that was the hardest for me was that most of the people that are raising money and have teams and are on there, it's in memory of, yeah. right? It's in memory of. So there's not a lot of survivors that are out there really, yeah, I'll enjoy my team of a survivor. Look at how great this is. And actually that's one of the issues too, is because there's not a lot of survivors out there. It it's hard to continue that type of advocacy for it. So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do experience the same the same yeah. issues with the National Brain Tumor Society. I will tell you that that um it is a great website that they have, Pancreatic yeah. Cancer Action Network, and I've spent quite a bit of time on it. And as I think about about um, what I can do and what your company can do, yeah. I've I found it to be a just a, a helpful outlet for that. That we can we can you know, help support pancreatic yeah. cancer research and support you. Yeah. Uh, by supporting PanCAD. Yeah. Uh, and I've been Absol- for that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and that, that's something that you have done, which has been so um, amazing. Like last year when I was first diagnosed, and I, I, I wrote about this on a LinkedIn article and it talked about um, the support again that I got was from the company. Um, and then Andreas Lusarczyk, who put together this uh, Meaning and Joy campaign. And this was Again, we were not yet in our offices and not able to kind of come together. Our idea was to have um, our colleagues auction rules there. So whatever expertise they had, what talent they had, it could be, I don't know, Jason um, Blackwell did bread baking and things you could do either remote, uh, on a remote situation. People have um, access to um, second homes or things like this for skiing or for, for other recreation. They were auctioning those off. People were harmonica lessons. I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, then one of our partners is a, quite, quite the mean harmonica player. So, um, and, and then other people in the company could bid on it. And it was just such a heartwarming, um, program and it raised $40,000, you know, just internally in our company. So it was creative and it was fun and it got, colleagues together so that they could uh, do something fun. It was all in, in for a great cause. And and I don't want to take away from other causes. There are so many causes that are so um, important. And I, and again, through, through um, the, the conversations are opening up with other colleagues about some health issues, either they're going through or family members are going through some of them significant. Um, I know that there are, believe me, I know there are so many other causes out there that could um, use the, the funds. Um, so, um, you know, but this is a great one. And, 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 and Lisa, you're a great cause for us too. <laughs> I appreciate that. Lisa, I want to ask you one more question before we get into our extraordinary teaching segment. And um, you you talked earlier about how you think about the future, and you you basically said that you're 
these are my words, not yours. I don't remember your exact words, but you're kind yeah. of taking it day by day. Yeah. Can you can you say a little bit more about what's the future for Lisa Poff? Will you will you come back to work? Will you will you pursue something else? What's yeah. the future for you? Yeah, you know it, it's it's so interesting, Michael, because I just I just was in New York um, on Thursday getting my scan. I started the, the this whole protocol of um, radiation, and then and then followed by immunotherapy back in uh, late November, December of last year. And um, so I go up, I was going up several times a month in the beginning. I go up once a month, except for the first scans. Um, so I just had my second scan with this protocol. And so far, the tumor is where it's supposed to be, staying in its lean, same right. little place. It has, the, the cancer has not spread. So I have been, I've not been on chemotherapy since the end of October. So this is very hopeful for me, um, but it feels very new, right? So I feel like I live scanned, scanned. <laughs> so, and I think Adam actually might have talked a little bit about that too. Um, oh, he does. He talks about anxiety. And, yes, yeah. And I, I read everything he writes about it. You, yeah, so you do. You get this, like, it, you, your, your world starts revolving around these scans. Um, but to answer your question, I am starting to think a little bit more about that, about coming back to work or, or what else I would be doing. I, again, I was so sick and so weak through chemotherapy. I couldn't think about anything um, because I, I just couldn't, I could barely function. And it wasn't until, and then I had radiation that has its own side effects and things like that. And then, so it's only been, so where are we? We're kind of the beginning of April. I would say for me actually feeling like myself it's only been about eight weeks. So in this entire journey, it's only been about two yeah. months that I, like, I, like, oh gosh, I wake up and I kind of feel like, like normal, <laughs> so, which is so crazy. Right. Um, but, but I do think about, about that. Um, and I don't, I'm not getting ahead of myself. Um, I'm trying to think in terms of maybe smaller increments of like living each day of just, again, what I said, having something to look forward to is so important. Um, and so we're, I, I, my husband and I have always wanted to go, I've been to Paris, my husband is not. So we're going to Paris at the end of this month. Something we attempted to do while I was my chemo, but it just, that it, I just couldn't do it. So um, we are going to Paris and we're going to be there. And then the other thing I'm looking forward to is my mother is going to be 91. She's always wanted to take a Mediterranean cruise. <laughs> so we're taking her on a Mediterranean cruise um, in September. So those are sort of the, the things I'm looking at. Um, and the other things I'm trying to say, okay, how, how am I feeling? How am I doing? So I mean, it would be, that would be absolutely something I would love to do though. So. All right, Lisa, let's move into the extraordinary teaching segment, see what we can learn beyond what you've already taught us. Okay. All right, here are my questions for you. And okay. uh, you know these questions because uh, you've been, you've been part of this podcast. Yeah. What's been your most satisfying accomplishment so far? Okay. So most satisfying accomplishment. This was tough for me, actually. I, I have heard these questions in the past, and this is tough. I would say I, I love being a mother. I I just love being a mother. That, to me, was 
and I don't even think it was an accomplishment. I mean, it's just, it's just something that I so enjoyed doing and being. By when I had Kelly, I I was we were living in San Diego, and um, and I worked that that first year, and then we moved to the East Coast, and I um, I just looked at my husband, and I said, I want to stay home with her for a while. So I did that actually for twelve years, but it was it was wonderful. It's, it's just I, I love being I love being a mother. So you have any regrets? Oh my goodness, yes! Everybody has regrets, right? <laughs> you have uh, you've got a lifetime of regrets, um, but I don't I don't dwell on the regrets. And actually, when you have a um, when you when you have a diagnosis like I have. You can really get into your own head about regrets. It's like, oh my gosh, like I, I regret this, or you're, you're faced with your own mortality. But if that leads quickly leads to despair, mm-hmm. and um, there's just simply no time for that. What single tip would you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? Oh goodness, um, I, I think it would be to never let fear prevents you from taking an opportunity um and you can fear can be i'm I'm not good enough i'm not prepared enough um whatever it might be um i don't have all the information um i just feel like that's such a limiting a life limiting way to live so i i just say look at the fear and and then go forward. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever given or received? Well, it's been from you and from others, <laughs> which is it's to fail regularly, right? Because if you are failing regularly, you are learning, you are growing. If you're not failing regularly, you have stopped in your tracks. So, um, and that gets back to fear because a lot of people have, and I in particular, I'm a perfectionist. So I have terrible fear of threat, failure. Um, and letting go of that fear and knowing that failure is an option. <laughs> it's a possibility. It, it's very freeing, actually. What have been your biggest mistakes or learning opportunities? Well, since I fail regularly. <laughs> Which I agree is. I have a lot of learning opportunities. I've had lots of learning opportunities um, because of that. I, I think I think it would be um, if if your decisions have in and in, in field we all feel right. Um, it's just if something happens, own it, right? Um, and then if it affected somebody else, apologize, um, and. And then just move on. Um, don't dwell on it. Who are your key role models or mentors? I would say early on, my my father. My father was, um, he was born, and it's true, it was dirt poor in Missouri. Um, the only out for him from that life was to join the Air Force. Military was the way out because college was not an option. My father... Um, succeeded in the military he was in for 21 years and then when he got out of the military he ended up going to college and he became an accountant um so he would study at night I remember coming home from school and there he is after dinner and he would be with his books on the kitchen table studying at the same time I was um and uh, so he was um 
and I think he's he was just that sort of optimistic person. He just had this resourcefulness um, as well. I also think for my mother, I think my mother had a, has a tremendous amount of integrity. Um, and she's a very smart woman, but again, you know, she did the secretarial route because that's what you did back in the day. You were like a nurse, a secretary, or a teacher. I think those were the three pretty, pretty much options for careers. And my, had my mother been born in a different era, she would have been a businesswoman, no, no doubt. Um, but she has a lot of maturity, and I remember her coming home. She belonged to this card club group, and um, I had never heard my mother ever, ever gossip about a person ever in her life. And she came back, and she said, I'm not going back to card club. And I said, why? She said, because they sit around and they gossip about people the entire time. And I said, okay, that makes sense. And so for my mother, it's that integrity, right? I think later in life, it's been from, from the people that I work with and, and particularly um, in the wealth management space. I, I don't think that there is enough appreciation out there for what you can call it financial advisors, financial planners, wealth managers, whatever term you want to use. What these people do on a day-to-day basis has always blown me away. I can't, there, there are people that they, they don't work harder than 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 the people I have worked with, I've had the great privilege of working with. They care about other people. They care about your life, your whole life, not just the dollars. It's not about just investing money. It's about how well are you living your life. They hear from their clients about the, the children, the issues with the children, or their own medical issues, or their fears. And they try to prepare them as best they can, not only from a financial position, because that just leaves the the term peace of mind. And I know that's very cliche, but there is that with, with what these people do. And they care deeply about their clients. And honestly, I could not do this job. I said this very often. I could not do what they do. It is all encompassing, all consuming. And these are some of the most caring people I have. The smartest, first of all, because you have to be super smart to, 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 to know all of the all of the different disciplines that you need to know in order to help people to successfully manage their money. But it's the caring part of it that just blows me away. Thanks so much for that answer. Two more questions. Yeah. Do you have a personal mission? Well, I'm not sure I may have a personal mission um, more than just, I think, how I live my life and I like to bring joy and encouragement to people. I think joy comes from, I love cooking for people. I love, um, I love it when they're, they're there and they're, and they're with me and they're, they're experiencing joy through that. Um, so I think the bringing joy where I can and how I can, and I would say encouragement. Um, if you mentioned her wealth earlier, um, and I've often said about myself, I am the best like Wizard of Oz. I'm like the person behind this curtain pulling all the levers. I love doing that kind of stuff, but you put me on a stage somewhere and I'm like a deer in headlights. I, like, I hate that kind of stuff. Um, we're having a personal conversation, so this is easier for me, but I'm, I'm just not one of those people that seeks the limelight. And um, with her wealth, um, we had two of our, our um, wealth advisors who had never done any public speaking or, or very little public speaking. 
Um, they were super smart at what they do. And we, we had, we were lucky enough to, or I shouldn't say we had the good fortune of uh, getting on uh, WTOP radio in the Washington DC area, which um, was a, um, was, a, was an earned media position versus a paid media position. And um, they've, the two of them have often said to me, they never would have done what they did. And it was so much fun had I not pushed them to do it. So you can name them if you want. So it's Don Dobler and Mitchell. Um, they were, they were, they were spokespeople. They continue to be spokespeople for her wealth. And, um, but I, where I could be a little pushy, I like to, I can see the potential in people. And I knew that they would be phenomenal actors. Um, and they, they, they took a chance on believing me and went out there and just did a heck of a job for, for two years with that, with that broadcast. I have no business interfering in, in your answers to these very personal questions, but I have to just take one little bit of issue. The Wizard of Oz analogy does not work because everyone who's seen The Wizard of Oz, and I've seen it a hundred times, I can't see it enough. I still love that movie. Um, everyone knows that The Wizard of Oz was just an illusionist and behind the curtains, basically creating illusions. And having worked with you, you are much more than that because what you are doing is real and has oh. real impact in the real world. Well, thank you for that. Lisa, I want to end with, with, with my last question. What will your legacy be? Mm, oh, my goodness. Um, we're still working on a legacy, so continue to work on it. I think it's just a work in progress right now. You might have to check back with me um, in a year. In fact, I think it's a good idea. Why don't you check back with me in 10 years? It'll give me something to look forward to, and then I can, I, I can be in that, that better statistic range. So why don't, why don't we do that? We'll check back in a few years. And... I will look forward to that conversation, my friend. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Any parting words? No, this has just been delightful. I really enjoyed coming on and I hope people um, who listen to this um, find encouragement and find, and find joy. And that, my friends, is the extraordinary Lisa Todd. You can learn more about Lisa on LinkedIn and Twitter at Lisa M. Pop. And if you want to support Lisa's important work with PanCan, you can do so at www.pancan.org. Please be sure to make your donations and support at least one. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit www.thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for The Extraordinary.